We are in the second section, and this is the letters of the seven churches, and this is chapters two and three, where God will give seven letters to the seven churches. In this section, Jesus Christ addresses the seven churches of Asia, commending, rebuking, and encouraging them. The emphasis of each letter to the churches is not to specifically encourage them to endure in the midst of sufferings, but rather to remain faithful to Jesus Christ despite the temptation to compromise their beliefs and morality with the culture. Those who do not compromise and as a result face persecution, Jesus encourages to remain faithful and endure, for he will make them victorious one day. The main focus of the letters is that of rebuking them for their compromise of faith in some kind of way. These rebukes are not mean-spirited, however, for Yahweh and Jesus rebuke because they love their people. It is clear that these churches were real historical churches, seen in the fact that Jesus addresses very specific issues that are relevant to the early church in the Greco-Roman world. Likewise, the mention of specific historical places and peoples roots these letters in this time period. Um, This is important because there are many people who say that these churches are just merely metaphorical images of time periods throughout history. So the historist view says that each church represents a period of human history, and we're currently in the Laodicea area. Of course, we've been in the Laodicea area like since World War II. But this isn't possible because, as you can see, if you've watched those videos by Joel Stoll on my website, I'd strongly recommend watching. They're very good. Um, These are very rooted and very historical cities with very historical events and names and places and dates that strips it of all this metaphoricalness. You can say uh, a land with seven eyes and seven horns is very metaphorical. We have seen that. Um, But when we're talking about aqueducts and Roman citadels and historical events and times, it's really hard to say that's metaphorical when it matches up with historical textbooks. Each of the letters follows a similar structure. The letter is addressed to the angel of the church. A description of Christ is drawn from Revelation and is applied to the letter's message. Then the church, five of the seven, is praised. And then the church, five of the seven, is rebuked. And then an individual message is given to each church, followed by an encouragement and a final call to repent and persevere. So this is the structure you're going to see, the format in each letter. The first church that he's writing to is Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading seaport in the capital of the Roman providence of Asia Minor. So all these churches you can see in the map are in Asia Minor. And we talked about how the letters are delivered in the way that a messenger would travel the road to them all. And Ephesus was a major wealthy city. Most likely this is the, according to their church fathers, the one that John directly pastored over before he was excommunicated to the island. Ephesus was wealthy. I mean, when you're the leading seaport, the Mediterranean controls all the trade in the world. All trade in the world comes through the Mediterranean, minus what would be coming from China down into uh, Africa and Africa back up again. But other than that, all trade goes to the Mediterranean world. The Roman Empire completely encircled the Mediterranean. And so if Ephesus was a leading seaport here, they're wealthy. They're extremely wealthy. 
Paul used this as a base of operation in the book of Acts. We see this, if you were in the Acts study, in the second part of Acts, he began to use it as a home base. Um, as he traveled around the Mediterranean doing his missionary trips, the second and the third one, and eventually was going to move to Rome and make that a home base, but he was in prison there. Timothy ministered there, was a pastor as well, as well as Apostle John. It was the largest city in Asia Minor and the place of prominent families, wealthy and luxury. It was a great port city, but it was beginning to die because of the river was beginning to silt up and they did not have dredgers in those days to clear it. The church had taken on the characteristics of the city around it. They're a hardworking city. They're extremely wealthy, but the river that allows the ships to kind of come inland and allow them to de-embark and load things up much, much on a more like mass batch level than just being on the coast is beginning to dry up, which is affecting the ability to trade, which slows down the wealth, and so they're beginning to die. And so that we, we are typically a reflection, maybe not today, but usually we are a reflection of our culture. That may not be true of every church, but especially in that time period where you're pretty much local and you're not influenced by the internet or communication or the ability to travel a lot of places. It's hard to be other than what your local area is. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the church of Ephesus, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars and his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have seen, you have even put to test those who refer to themselves as apostles but are not and have discovered that they are false. I am also aware that you have persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Therefore remember from what high state you have fallen repent. Do the deeds that you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. But if you do, but you do have this going for you. You hate with the Nicolaeans practice, practices that I also hate. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Christ is addressing the angels that are over each church. Uh, we already talked about this. The word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, and it can mean a supernatural divine being, or it can mean an actual physical human messenger. As mentioned before, this is the angel that is over the church as in a supernatural being. Jesus deliberately addresses their angel to remind them of the spiritual dimension of their daily life and witness, for they were rooted in both worlds. Remember, the major argument of this book is that you need to remain faithful to Jesus as the God-man. That many people in the church, as Jews, were denying the divinity of Jesus, where a lot of the Gentile Christians that converted were questioning and struggling with the humanity of Jesus because they had a hard time with a God-man kind of like that idea. And so the main idea is to remind them that they are part of two worlds. They are connected to the spiritual realm, but they are also in the material realm. Their Savior is both physical and spiritual. And so by addressing the angel to them, angels always serve as links between the spiritual and the material. 
right? I mean, we've had so many stories where once you encounter an angel and you're convinced that it's an angel, it's very hard to deny the reality of the spiritual realm, especially as it encounters into the metaphysical or into the physical realm. And so by addressing the angel to them, he's rooting them in the spiritual realm and also connecting the material. The title that Jesus uses of himself, remember, so each letter he's going to reference back to a title from chapter 1. So the Jesus with the fiery eyes, the sword coming out of the mouth, the golden sash around his waist, the bronze feet, the seven stars, the seven lampstands. Each church, he's going to begin the letter with addressing one of these elements of Jesus and linking it to them in some kind of a way. So he's rooting them to Jesus, this glorious figure, the God-man once again. Not just Jesus who hangs out with children and eats, and not just Jesus who's this logos um, metaphysical divine God that you can connect to in a mystery religion, Greek kind of a way, um, but the Jesus that John sees and touches as well as looks glorious and divine. And so each one of these titles is once again linking them to the spiritual realm as well as the physical. And the phrase that he uses, the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So remember this phrase, the seven stars referred to the angels in heaven and the lampstands, the church of the, the physical realm. So notice how much physical and material, or sorry, material and um, spiritual keep getting linked together and all these imageries. This would communicate to the church that he was among them and was evaluating them. He was among them and evaluating them. Remember that he said that my biggest complaint against you is you've forgotten your first love. How do you do that? You start feeling disconnected from Christ. You stop having those intimate um, connections with him. And so by using this phrase, he's letting them know, I am with you. I stand among you, and I am waiting. I'm, I'm here to be intimately connected to you. But I'm also the God that holds the seven stars, which means I'm evaluating you. I'm evaluating you. He does start off by commending them. This is a church that gets commended and rebuked. So it has both of them. The first thing that Jesus commended them for was their good deeds in serving other people. They were actively involved in their community. They were serving people. They had the soup kitchens and the mission, the, 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 the missions and, and the, the, um, the homeless shelters and the, all that kind of stuff. They were actively involved in the community. They had great deeds. People recognized them and admired them for their hard work for their act of love for other people, their generosity, uh, their, their, their commitment to helping people. They were hard workers in the kingdom of God, and they persevered no matter what the struggle. No matter how many people said, whatever, I don't believe you actually care about me, they persevered. No matter how much they were persecuted, they persevered. No matter how much they felt like they were giving up or they weren't making a difference in the community, they persevered. No matter how much the government like made it difficult for them financially to have a ministry, they persevered. He's commending them for being hard workers, great in their deeds and act of love, as well as persevering no matter what the struggle. When you would look at this church, you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the church that you would look at and you would say, this is just absolutely awesome, phenomenal. They show up in the news. They're just there. They were conservative, disciplined church, committed to right conduct and ministry to others. They also valued right behavior, morality, behavior, the Ten Commandments, living a Christian life, living a godly life, and an obedient life. And so this is what he commends them for. 
The second thing that he commends them for is that they did not tolerate wicked people and attested those who claimed to be apostles and exposed them as false teachers. That means that they knew the word of truth well and were not afraid to remove false teachers from the church. So the second thing is they know the word of God well. They're, they're, they're studies of the word. They have great um, Bible studies, great how to do apologetics kind of a stuff, all these kind of things. And they know the word of God so well that anybody who begins to teach in their church, they can immediately spot them as a false teacher or counterfeit. And they're committed to that. And not only are they committed to knowing the word of God, they're not afraid to call that false teacher out and kick them out of the church. They're not afraid to do that. Truth is important to them. Truth is important to them. Third thing is Jesus commended them for what was that commended them for was for that they were uh, sorry Jesus commended them that they remained faithful to Jesus despite suffering and had not grown weary nor drifted into apostasy they had not backslid morally and they had persevered despite the struggle so the third he commended them for is they are remaining faithful there's no evidence that they're backsliding in their faith there's no evidence they're backsliding in their work and their efforts and their perseverance this is a church that you would commend them for in many ways. But what Jesus had against them was that they had lost their love for Yahweh, their intimate relationship with Jesus. They had lost the devotional part, the, the intimacy with Christ. They had lost the relationship, the hearing his voice, seeking out his voice, just sitting there in the silence and listening to him and that kind of stuff. And they once were intimately connected to Jesus and passionate about serving him. But gradually, they had fallen from their former intimacy, and now they were faithful to Jesus merely out of sense of duty. When you lose that relationship, it now becomes a something that you're doing it because that's the right thing to do. Everything they were doing now was that they truly loved God, they were truly committed to God, they, they truly believed in God, but now it became a sense of duty, the right thing to do. This is what good people do. This is what people who follow God do. And they, and probably there was a little bit of pride too as they pointed out the false teachers. As they made sure that it's clear that you're not doing the right thing. You're not towing the party line, so to speak. Jesus was merely a sense of duty. They did not serve the kingdom of Yahweh because they were passionately in love with him, because they were, they were connected to him, but rather because they did what was right. They were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. They were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. To be honest, this is the one that I can fall into. I struggle with connecting to people. I struggle with relationships, so it's made it hard to connect to an invisible God as well. And so um, God made me a five on the Enneagram with a six wing. I'm a beaver in the animal personality, if you know what that is. D in the, the C and the, the, the Myers-Briggs, so I love detail. I mean, that's why I'm up here teaching. So, I, but it's, 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 it's hard to just be still. My mind immediately, like when I try to do devotions, I immediately want to like start dissecting the word of God rather than be able to just sit there and wait for a voice. And, and so I, that's something that I know that that's my weakness and that's what I struggle with. And some others probably could relate to that as well. And, and so God is encouraging them um, to, to not forget that part, to not let that go to the wayside, to not get so wrapped up in that, you are holding the truth. You are working hard, and you are committed to other people knowing the truth. 
and yet you're you're not that relationship part can I can get lost in a lot of ways and and we've all been there at times no matter what your personality is where we've all kind of like we've all been on the roller coaster of where we're like doing our devotions and that kind of stuff and we're serving hard and yet maybe the just be still and know I am God just seems to lack especially when we're in America and where America loves to make us so busy that it's hard to just be still and know that I'm God. And so this is going to be normal. You're going to have dry spells in your life. Um, God is not necessarily rebuking them for having these moments. We're human. He knows that. You're going to have dry spells. You're going to feel disconnected. You're probably going to do devotions for a week or so and be like, I haven't heard you, God. And your mind wanders off, right? And it's hard to bring it back sometimes with all the to-do lists and all the things. That's not what he's really necessarily rebuking them for. Um, we all that what he's rebuking them for is one that they haven't come back that they that it's been a long time and they're still just keeping on this path this is not a dry spell for them this is not something that they've consciously acknowledged and they're working hard to try to have that connection um, for me I know this is a huge weakness for me but I don't like it and I don't want that and so I try and sometimes I fail and sometimes I succeed um, but I still try. It matters to me. But for them, it's not even on the radar anymore. They've, they've become so committed to the hard work and so committed to the truth that they, they very much felt like we're doing a good job. And that, that's the really deceptive part is that everything else about them is very godly. Everything else about them is very commendable. They probably have been praised for it by other people like wow you really serve the people a lot and you're really committed and, and you, you you're always there and you just put in a lot of hours helping people and and you, you're really committed to the truth and and that becomes very easy to think well i'm doing good i'm doing really good like isn't that what the bible talks about and the bible does talk a lot about these things a lot about these things it even co- condemns people for not serving and working hard and, and, and evaluating the truth. Could this not be the path the Pharisees started on? Oh, yeah. In fact, the, the Pharisees originally were known as the Hasidim, and they were basically people who said, we never want to go into exile again. Why do we go into exile? Because we worshipped other gods and we didn't obey the Torah. And so they began to emphasize that, and then eventually over generations, it became all about that and not about God, to the point that Jesus came along and says, you don't even know who God is anymore. It's just about truth and morality. In fact, it's really become so much about you that eventually you give this church long enough and they will begin to make their own truth, like the Pharisees did. They won't go into a New Age, heretical, crystals, meditation, I am a God kind of truth, but they will go into my rules are just as equal as God's rules. When people like this stray from truth, they don't stray into the New Age. They condemn them. They rebuke them. They, they kick them out of the churches. They don't stray into Islamic ideas or, or the cultural compromises with sexuality or that kind of stuff. Where they stray is that my rules of behavior and that you have to work really hard and this is the way we do the soup kitchen and this is the way that we do the, 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 the food shelter and this is the way that we do the children's ministry. Those rules are equal to God's rules. That's where they tend to stray. And at first, it probably was a good idea, right? Like, my kids, they're not allowed to go, they're not allowed to pray to the street, right? They go in the street, they die. So what I've done is, they're not allowed to even go across the sidewalk. So they're allowed to be on the sidewalk, but they're not allowed to go in that little grassy area, right? 
And that's a good rule, right? There's nothing wrong with that rule. It means that my kids who are often distracted, that they get distracted and cross over the sidewalk and they realize, oh my gosh, we've gone too far, they're still safe, right? Or they trip and fall, they're still safe. The problem is if I start making that grassy area as equal to the street and start punishing it in the same way as going the street does and start talking about it being as dangerous as the street. That's a very small analogy, but it kind of paints the picture. There's nothing wrong with the rule itself as a buffer. Adam and Eve, maybe they decide, you know what? We're not allowed to eat of it, but we're not even going to touch it either. That's going to keep us safe. The problem is when she said, God said, don't eat and touch. And she lifted it up equal to God's law. And so these kind of people, they strain to making more rules. And that's where they get lost and disconnected. And they make him equal, equal. This is the legalism, the behaviorism. You want behaviorism? Go join any religion. They all have behavior. But Christ is about a relationship. And a, re and a good behavior is the product of an intimate relationship with God. I don't want to wrong you, God, because I love you too much. Not because this is the way that you act. Granted, with little kids, it is the way you act because they don't have Jesus yet and they're tiny little balls of sin and rebellion. But the hope, too, is one day they will understand it and you don't want to beat the behaviorism drum so much that when you finally talk about the relationship, when they're old enough to accept Christ's stuff, they don't have any idea what you're talking about. And you know that is like probably the hardest struggle as a parent. The hardest struggle of a parent is walking the line between behaviorism but also doing it for the right reasons of relationship and also when to show mercy and when to show justice. Those are incredibly hard, and I have no 10-step process. I just know they both must be maintained. This church has fallen into that, and they've forgotten their first love. Once again, he's not rebuking you for struggling with that. He's not rebuking you. Like on the flip side, there's a completely opposite personality to me that's going to struggle with the things that I'm good at. As long as that person says, but I want to be good at that because that's what matters to me. That's not what the rebuke was for. It's not even the rebuke for a dry spell where you went a couple of months or maybe even a year and you didn't even really realize that you were off track. The rebuke is when you just aren't doing more. The track record has been a long time. And the rebuke is really not for the individual, but the fact that the entire community has become that way. In our church, there's lots of people who are probably struggling with that. Lots of people are struggling with the complete opposite, where they're really on fire for God, but they don't really know how to implement truth and really hard works. It's just passion for them. That exists everywhere, and we need each other. We need each other. Opposites attract. God used that intentionally. The problem is that the entire church has become like this, which means there's nobody in the church to say, wait a minute. This is what Jesus is rebuking them for. They were genuine believers. They have a lampstand. A lampstand represents that you are saved. You have salvation. You are being a light of God to the world. They're genuine believers. He's not questioning them for not being believers. He's not saying that they haven't been saved. They're genuine believers. But they are in danger of raising another generation that will not be saved. We have focused so much as the American church on just getting people saved that we have forgot how to educate them to use their mind. And as a result, we have these really feel this and feel that, feel that kind of Christians. And they don't know how what truth is and to hold to it. And the generation that has done that may not be guilty of not having salvation, 
But we can see as we look around us that we have a lot of people that are like in their teens and in their 20s and 30s now that don't seem to know what truth is. And the same thing is true of this on the reverse side. They have been so committed to truth and that kind of stuff that they're in danger of them not losing their salvation, but of raising up their children in such a way that they become so behavioristic, so committed that this is what you're supposed to do, that they don't even know what a relationship with God looks like. And the next generation is in danger of that. And that's where we've seen in our culture. We, we, we pounded truth and obedience and behavior so much in the earlier generations. And I'm not condemning or blaming anybody for anything because artfully my generation is screwing up big time too and all that kind of stuff. But we do these pendulum swings, right? And we pounded behavior, 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 and, and Awana, and, and I'm not saying Awana is bad, but just memorization, right, 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 that this led to the hippie movement. And then, and then other things, and now we, we have a generation where they don't really know what truth is, and they're rebelling against just pure behaviorism. And that's definitely a very broad thing, but um, we, we can see that in the culture. We can see that in the culture. The danger is not that they're losing their salvation. The danger is the future of the church, what the next generation will be like. Churches that are committed to truth and right conduct might be filled with merely morally good people and possibly self-righteous people who heap condemnation on those around them, whether directly or indirectly. This kind of faith maintains the integrity of the church, but it lacks the intimate, vulnerable, and compassionate love for, the care, for those who cares of others and attacks the broken world and thus brings life and joy. Now, these kind of people then also begin to stray into too much condemnation for other people. They, they lose compassion. Um, a church that I uh, there was a church that I was a part of that I used to be a part of, where this is what they prized. They 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 would point to people in their church like, but look, they work so hard in ministry. It's like, yeah, but they have no love for people. They're so harsh and condemning, and, and they're disconnected from people. But look at how hard they work. We would not have a children's ministry without them. Yeah, but there's no vulnerability. There's no compassion. There's no intimate relationship. And I saw that. And so there was always a justification for how hard they worked. And our church can't keep going without their hard work. And that's what made them a good Christian. But at the same time, there was none of that there. And, and I think and that's one of the things. That, okay, this is, not, <laughs> this is not a promotion to recruit you. There's lots of great churches. But this one of the things I've really liked about Linworth is that they are starting to get into that the vulnerability. They've always been very vulnerable from the pulpit. And they're really emphasizing the idea of being emotionally healthy as well as spiritually healthy. And, and that's something that I think the modern-day church really needs a lot of. We have really not done a good job. This is my personal opinion. But coming up in a church background that was really good at right, 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 behave, 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 but not having a lot of vulnerability and a lot of emotional connections when I was growing up, that really affected my marriage. That affected the way that I was a father. And I've had to learn a lot about how to be vulnerable and how to be emotional. I wish I could have learned this way by now for my kids' sake. Um, but I have changed a lot, and I still struggle, and I still have defaults. And my defaults is perfectionism, okay, and to, to do it the right way. And, and so, and I know that, but 
I know that my, my ability to communicate to my kids is way more powerful when I'm vulnerable with them and relationally connected to them than when I'm just saying, this is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. This is one of the things I've realized growing up is that America is just not good at that in general. First, they saw they were naked and filled with shame, and they immediately hid. That's just a human thing. And then America itself is not good. And now we got two kinds of emotions going on. The people who stuff their emotions and the people who just spew them all over everybody in social media. And neither one of them actually are in touch with their emotions and actually know what they're doing. They just feel something and then they stuff it. Or they feel something and spray you. But they don't actually know why they're feeling or what they're feeling and they don't process it so they can have a healthy relationship with people. And so... Um, this is a big struggle of the church today, the American church as a whole. I'm not saying every church or every believer, but as a corporately speaking, we need to start embracing more of a spiritual truth to the word of God and works in the kingdom of God, but as well as a spiritual, emotional vulnerability as we connect with each other, as we connect with God. And if you want resources on that, I have gobs of books and videos that my wife and I have plowed through trying to become, well, especially me, more emotionally connected and more emotionally in tune. Um, but my default is still that just that truth, that behavior. This is what he's, he's, he's condemning them for. And like I said, even though all the other things are great and they're serving people and making a difference, if they go too far, they will have another generation of a bunch of hippies. The next generation will be a bunch of hippies. People are just so rebelling against the behaviorism that all they want to do is feel. And then feel becomes truth to them. And then we can see that. We, when, you, when you pound this behaviorism and truth hard enough, then the next generation rebels by saying, I just want to feel. I just want to feel, 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 feel. And now truth is relative. Now you can say whatever you want. It doesn't matter as long as you feel good about it. And that's the real danger. That's the real danger. Jesus called this church to repent of whatever was hindering. Verse 5. Therefore remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds that you did at the first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. So God says, remember why you came to the faith. Remember the encounter that you had with me. Remember how in love you were with me in the beginning. Remember the high state. Notice that he says the high state that they fell from was the relationship, not the truth and not the hard works and deeds. The high state was the relationship. The high state that they used to have was connected to God. If you have an incredible intimate relationship with God, he can do anything with you. But if you're not connected to God, then you're in your own world and your own devices. Give me somebody who's on fire and passionate for Jesus and I can disciple them into knowing the word of God and and working hard in the kingdom of God. Give me somebody who's not passionate, not fired up. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? That's the high state. The high state is not necessarily my gifts and abilities as a teacher of the word of God, but the highest state is to be intimately connected to God intimately connected and emotionally vulnerable. 
And most of our churches, we got people of all different personalities usually. And so it's easy for somebody to say, you know what? I don't really like that part of you because I think it's a little extreme. But I do recognize I need some of that. And the, the fact that I keep seeing you every Sunday is a reminder that I need to keep pursuing that in my life, right? And that's hard when everybody in your church is the exact same way. And they're all going down the same wrong path, so to speak. Not wrong path and rebellion or I'm not a Christian, but wrong path and there's just no passion. And that's what the rebuke is for. If that's your tendency, if this is what you're falling into, or this is where you are right now, then yes, it's sometimes annoying those people on the complete opposite side are, because everybody who's completely opposite of you is always annoying, right? The opposite sex can be annoying. The opposite personality can be annoying. The opposite political party can be annoying. They're still there for a reason because we need them. We need to be reminded that I need some of that in my life. I I can't go so far over here that I lose any of that. Find a friend like that and gravitate towards them. And you'll know them too, so you'll have fun together. But that, that's, what, that's what Christ is calling them to. Do not forget your first love. And then you'll go in and say, like, do whatever it is. Whatever it is, do it to help you remember that, to help you get back into that. So once again, the rebuke is not that you've fallen into that or you struggle with that. God's not the kind of God that, like, you off-step or get a little backslid a little bit. And he's like, with a lightning bolt. That's not the kind of God that he is. This is a church that universally, as a whole, corporately has become like this. And they have gone off and done that path for a very, very long time. Warning to you is, don't allow yourself to go down that path. Make sure that you surround yourself with people that don't allow you to do that. Read books that help you do that. My recommendation for you, just this is, this is not in the Bible, okay? Uh, there is a series. I'm not a big fan of the message. I don't really like that translation that much. Eugene Peterson is still a phenomenal man of God. I don't really like the message, but he's a phenomenal man of God with a great passion for God. And he's got a book series, and the first one is called Eat This Book. Um, and it's a three-book series that really does a good job of being scholarly rooted as well as like helping you maintain your passion for God and keeping that going. I would recommend that. And there's another commentary series or another thing I recommend, D.A. Carson. I like D.A. Carson. He, his brain works like my brain. And he's got a great devotional that helps maintain the deep scholarly work but also helps you feel God a little bit. I forget the name of it. It's on my website. If you go to resources, they're there. I don't think I added the eat this book but I'll add that so if you're struggling with that I found those are two things that have helped me um, so if you go to my website and go to Bible studies and, or studies and you'll see resources and in there you'll see Eugene I'll add that sometime the next day or so Some, uh, I'm, this list is in progress or things. so these are books I think every Christian should be reading and the, the, the D.A. Carson's devotional is in there it's, God is in the title so, yeah. So, but these are good books that I've found that have helped me. Um, Tozer's books are pretty good, but they're not as in that realm of feeling as I could be. But um, Eat This Book is a really good book. It's three book series. That's the first one of basically just kind of being rooted intellectually in truth, but as well as helping you just, the idea is dancing with God, so to speak, 
and not in a Jesus is my friend kind of a way, but um, just a being connected to him kind of a way. But here's another one. If you struggle there, go to the Psalms. The Psalms are really good with emotions. If you're like, I don't even know how to express my emotions, read the Psalms until something connects. Just read the first one, read the second one, read the third, and eventually, probably within about 10 Psalms, because they're pretty mixed up with, and you'll connect. Even if you're like, I hate my neighbor, there's some Psalms there for you too, okay? <laughs> and, and, and they're just about you connecting emotionally with God. Because if you can connect to God, even if you hate, like David's like, well, whoever the author of the Psalms is for some, he's like, I hate them. Bury them alive. Kill their children. Okay, and you're like, whoa, that's not godly. Why did God put that in the Psalms? Because that's what David felt, and he took those emotions and he brought them to God because only God can deal with your emotions. That was the most important thing. It wasn't like, David, you're not supposed to think and feel that way. But I can handle that, David. Thank you for being vulnerable with me, David. Because now we're connected, and I can change you. And that's what the Psalms are about. And so if you struggle with your prayers there, sometimes I've just done that. I've just opened the Psalms, and I'm like, I just read until something connects. What he's doing is saying, that's the high state. And then he says, do whatever you need to do to get back to that first moment. You'll fall and repent. Do the deeds. Whatever it was that you were doing when you first met Jesus and were first connected, and start doing that again. It's kind of like you've grown apart with your spouse. Go back to the first place that you met each other. Try to rekindle those emotions. Go on that first date again. Do the, the, do the things that you were doing when you were dating, as long as they were morally right, right? <laughs> do the things that first made you feel like, wow, I want to connect to this person. I want to share my life with them and my thoughts with them and my emotions with them and begin to do those things to help you maintain that relationship and that connection. And that's what he's calling them to. And this is the beauty. He doesn't just say, like, get it right. He gives them a practical advice. Go back to the things that you were doing when you first were in love with Christ and begin to do those again. If you do not, though, I will remove your lampstand. And this is the warning. The lampstand is you as the light of God in the world. It is your influence. Jesus makes it very clear. You are the light of the world. You're to shine. How will the world, how can the world stay on track if you are not the light and the salt of the world? The, 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 the lampstand, the light is God's influence. It's God's, it's, it's the light that first appeared in the Shekinah glory of God and came down and dwelt with them. It is you in the image of God. The lampstand represents you as the image of God, connected to God, and your ability to influence the word, the world with your words and your deeds. And what God is saying is, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You'll no longer have an influence. Because I don't want a church that doesn't love me and know me and know how to hang out with me influencing the world because when the world sees that kind of church they just see a narrow-minded bigoted rule-falling church and that doesn't bring people to christ it might bring a few people here and there but overall that turns a lot of people off and i can't have you turning people off from the faith and so if you keep going down this path and keep doing what you're doing then i'll remove your influence 
And, and you will literally have, the world won't listen to your voice anymore. Your, your soup kitchen won't thrive anymore. The, the, the people coming in your church won't happen anymore. Now, I'm not saying if you've got a ministry and people aren't coming or your church isn't growing, that that's because God has removed your lampstand. There could be other reasons. I'm just saying this is what he's talking about. I, there's lots of people who struggled for a long time to get people, and all of a sudden a revival hits, and it just they've had, they had to sow the seeds for a long time in their community before they begin to see growth popping up out of the soil. So I'm not saying if you don't, numbers are not everything. I'm not saying if you don't see numbers or growth or that kind of stuff that, that the guys remove your lampstand. I'm just saying this is what removing the lampstand looks like. If you're not seeing numbers growing, then you need to ask yourself why. Is that because numbers are not everything and you're doing everything right and you live in a generation where you preach for 120 years and nobody repents like Noah because they're so evil? Or is it because your lampstand has been removed? And so I'm not saying that this is necessarily true. I'm just saying this is what a removed lampstand looks like. And God says, I'm going to remove it. You're not going to have an influence anymore. You're not going to impact people anymore. And you're not going to grow in a vibrant way. You need to love God. You need to delight in Him. Repentance for Him here is not repenting from bad behavior. They're not behaving badly. They're not believing the wrong thing. Remember, repentance is turning away from something. And what they're to turn away from is their stagnant, emotionless connection to Christ. And for here, it's remembrance. Remembrance. Remember, we talked about this in Deuteronomy. Remembrance is the key to faithfulness. Is there an example, a historical example of a church losing its, uh, having its lampstand removed? Europe. Europe. The vast majority of churches in Europe now are mosques. They have lost their... They just got so sidetracked. For them, it wasn't about the truth. Most of the churches over there have lost their lampstands. They've been removed. I'm not saying every single church, but when you look at an entire continent practically, and they're all practically mosques, Europe is just so compromised. Um, It's obvious that a lot of lampstands have been removed. A lot of lampstands have been removed. You might be able to point to some churches in your hometowns or something like that. But Christ goes back to commending them. It's interesting that he loops back around and he says this, but you do have this going for you. You hate what the, 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 that, what the Nicolaitans practice. Practices I also hate. The one who has an ear had better hear. So he comes back and he says, but, but at the same time, there is passion in you. There is passion. Because you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. And there's almost like an encouragement there, like that passion for that hatred of their practices, harness that into a passion for Christ. That's, that seems to be an implication. Who are the Nicolaitans? We have really no idea. We, we really, there's lots of guesses and theories, but we don't know. The word Nicolaitans is a transliteration. Now, a translation is when you have like a Spanish word like amigo, and then you translate, which means friend, and you translate it into the English equivalent friend. 
They're, they're spelled completely different, they're pronounced completely different, but they mean the same thing. You find the English equivalent or the Spanish or French or whatever language you're in equivalent of that word to communicate the meaning. A transliteration is when you take the letters, now that doesn't work with Spanish because we have the same letters, but if you've ever, um, like you take Russian letters or you take um, um, Greek letters or Hebrew letters that do not look anything like the English, and you're like this letter that looks kind of like a house with a window in it, that's the H sound, so you make it an H. Okay, and then you have this other one that looks kind of an X with squiggly. That's the uh sound, so you make it uh, a. And so you find the, the equivalent of the sound of each letter, not the meaning of the word, but the sound of each letter. And so Nicolaeans is a transliteration of two Greek words that mean conquer and people. So they're not translating the meaning of the word. They're transliterating, changing the letters to match up with English or Latin letters that mean conquer and people. So that's all we know. That's all we know about. There's something about conquering and people. Um, do they mean this with their teachings? Do they mean this with their brainwashing? Do they mean this with their occult practices? We don't necessarily sure. But we know a lot about the false teachings of that time period. And the vast majority of the Greek false teachings was that Jesus is just a God and you can become an enlightened God as well. If you teach, if you fall, and knowing it, realizing the, who the Ephesians are and what they've commended, been commended for, most likely the Nicolaeans are teaching some kind of what's called Gnosticism, where they claim that truth, whatever your truth is, is what will make you a god. And if you you can you can learn secret teachings that will help you become a god. And for them, truth is whatever you want it to be. Truth is intuition. Truth is the gut. And that was the, the very common false teaching among the Greeks at that time period. Most likely that their, their teaching has something to do with that or some kind of dualism where there's good and evil and they're equal and you just need to balance them like Yoda. And once you balance them perfectly, then you can become this powerful godlike being. Um, so that's what Yoda is. Yoda doesn't, he hasn't renounced evil. He's balanced them perfectly. So, and that's why he's so powerful and can be enlightened, become a spirit. So so there's something there that they've done. So their indulgence, um, Irenaeus, an early church father who lived in the late second century, wrote that the Nicolaeans were without restraint in their indulgences of the flesh and practiced fornification, the eating of food, sacrificed idols. So that makes sense. Truth is whatever you want it to be, and your truth will make you a god. So if you're a god, you can follow your heart and do whatever you want because you're a god. And so that makes sense why they would be like that. So hating what is evil or false is not self-righteousness, and it's in alignment with the principles of Yahweh. They hate what is false. And a lot of people say, that's so self-righteous. But God is saying, no, 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 no. No, it's not. That's being in alignment with the gospel. Then he says, those who have ears, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. And so he says, this comes from Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah 2, let him who has ears hear, let him who eyes see. Basically, only those who have true spiritual eyes and ears, they can only be opened by the Spirit of God, let him see and hear. Everybody hears the word of God, but not everybody actually sees and hears the message that is there 
because that can only come through the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God is speaking to everybody, but not everybody listens to the Spirit of God. And if you don't open yourself to the Spirit of God, then you're blind to the meanings of God's Word. You're blind to them. So he says, the only way you can really maintain truth in your life is if you get connected to God. And if you do this, those who persevere, those who are victorious, I will make you conquerors. You will conquer the evil in your life. You will conquer the, the persecutors. Um, not in a I will beat you up with my fist kind of a way, but I will conquer you in that you will not kill me and take me into hell because I know Christ and I know the truth. And he emphasized that they would be able to eat from the tree of life, which emphasized promise, intimacy, and life to the fullest. Remember, Adam and Eve were able to eat from the tree of life. But when they sinned against God, they were kicked out of the garden and they lost that direct face-to-face intimacy with God. And so the tree of life represents... If you remember your first love and do the things that you once did and you rekindle that passion with me in connection, you'll be able to eat from the tree of life. You'll have intimacy. And intimacy is what brings life. Intimacy was what brings life. And so this is his commending and condemnation of the church of Ephesus. And if you find yourself connecting in that way, then that's your prayer for the next couple of weeks. If you find yourself relating to this in any kind of a way, then I would encourage you to make this your prayer. I encourage you to make this prayer. Help me rediscover an intimate, vulnerable connection with you, God. Put in my mind the things that I need to do. Give me the commitment to do those things as committed as I was to studying the Word of God and working hard in the kingdom of God. That, that, that is your prayer. That is your prayer.